Okay, we are in First Thessalonians. First Thessalonians, chapter four. Uh, looking at verses nine through twelve. This is part two. We started looking at this section of God's word last week, and we're finishing it up this week. We primarily looked at what a God-pleasing life in the church looks like. This week, we'll look at what a God-pleasing life in society looks like for the Christian. So if you uh, don't have a Bible, there's a blue one, likely, located underneath the seat around you. In that Bible, you can turn to page 986. That'll bring you to the section of God's Word that we'll be in this morning. So, quickly, what does it look like to live a life pleasing to God? What does it look like to live a life pleasing to God? And that's really what we're looking at, and specifically in particular areas of our lives. What does it look like? But more importantly, uh, friends, does that an- or does the answer to that question matter to you? Does that matter to you? Just ponder that this morning. Maybe that'll be the thing you take away this morning and need to think about. Does pleasing God matter to you? How often is it part of your thought life, your devotion, your time? How much of that occupies your mind or your day? I pray that the Spirit of God will, will work uh, to bring conviction where conviction is needed, and, and you'll think seriously about that this morning and throughout the week. And, but we are picking up where we left off last Sunday uh, in this letter that was written to a group of new Christians who lived in Thessalonica. As you know, these new Christians had come to believe and trust in Jesus Christ when Paul and his traveling companions had visited the city and preached the gospel there. And before the Apostle Paul was sent away to Berea, he had given this group of new converts instructions concerning the kind of lives that they as Christians were expected to live. That is, lives that would be pleasing to God. Just continuing on that thought, that note, beloved, God redeems us, saves us, regenerates us, and makes us new creatures in Christ for this very reason that we would no longer do as we did before, that is, walk in rebellion to him, but rather live lives that honor him, glorify him, please him. Any of you ambitious? Nothing wrong with being ambitious if it's ambitious towards the right things. Our great ambition should be, as Christians, our great ambition should be to please God 
And that would be to please him in our homes, to please him in our marriages, to please him in our workplace, to please him in our communities, to please him as a neighbor, as a friend, to please him as a spouse. In other words, you function in a way as a spouse or a friend or a neighbor in a way that would be pleasing to God as a parent, as a child, as an employer, as an employee. We are to please him with our time, please him with our talents, please him with our treasure. We are to please him even when we are sinned against. In all things and in all ways, we should, we must, we must strive to live lives pleasing to God. To please God, one writer says, is the true aim and end of the Christian's walk. The Christian does not walk with a view to, or should not, I should say, walk with a view to obtaining the maximum amount of satisfaction for himself. The Christian should not do that. The Christian must not do that. Rather, he must walk in order to please his Lord. And then the writer says, such an aim for the Christian's endeavor, pleasing the Lord, is the logical outcome of his love for his Lord. You want to please those you love, yes? And so, beloved, just to diagnose yourself, if you are a follower of Christ, but you think not much about pleasing him, pleasing God, you think not much about that. In fact, you are more committed to pleasing yourself then that would be an indication that your love has grown cold for God. You need to do something about that. It's lack of love. It's grown cold. You need to repent. You need to invest yourself back into the Lord. For others, you never had any love for God because you've never been born again. You've never been saved. You've never been redeemed. You associate with the people of God, but you are not heart, truly, of the people of God. And I pray that the Spirit of God would convict you even now, this morning, in the hearing of this, these words, that you would realize you're living in total rebellion to God. You care not about what pleases Him. You care only, really, mostly, about what pleases you. And that puts you in a dangerous and awful position. For if you were to die in that state, you would be separated from God forever in a place of torment. And and no believer in here desires that for you, nor does God. So repent and turn to the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved and be made new and become a creature, a new creation in Christ, a child of God, and begin to find out what it means to live a life that seeks and ought to strive and strives to honor and please the Lord. Now, beloved, Paul had received word back that the Christians in Thessalonica were indeed walking as they had been instructed. That's good news. 
that is living in order to please God. They were doing it. They were doing it. They were in love with their Lord. They were so blessed by their salvation. And so they were moved and motivated to do anything and everything that would bring honor to him. But Paul determined, even though they were doing well, he determined to revisit and reinforce some of the previous instruction that they had been given. That's what we see here in this text. Nothing wrong with revisiting and reinforcing instruction. Right, mom and dad? And church. It's really what we do. We just keep revisiting and reinforcing the instruction that we've received before. It's so important, so necessary, because we are prone to wander, prone to forget, and prone to let our love grow cold. So, after he addresses the important matter of their personal purity in verses 3 through 8 of chapter 4, Paul then moves on to the matter of brotherly love, or love for other Christians in verses 9 and 10 which is what we looked at last week. Now, we'll look at another matter concerning how Christians are to walk and please God, which begins in verse 11. So let's begin the reading from verse 9. Chapter 4. Now, concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. And to work, or I'm sorry, to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. So, Paul, as one writer puts it, brings here together here two communities to which all Christians belong. To the world, they live in the world, the society, and to the church. The outsiders and the Christian brotherhood. And he speaks to both on how the Christian is to please God in these different relationships. So in verses 9 and 10, Paul focuses in on the relationship between believers, as we covered last week, or what God-pleasing behavior looks like among Christians or those within the church. And what does that look like? Well, exercising and excelling in brotherly love. Brotherly love, right? That was last week. If you aren't here, I encourage you to go back and maybe listen to it online. Now, in verses 11 and 12, Paul focuses on the relationship between the church and outsiders, and outsiders. Or to say it another way, Paul addresses what God-pleasing behavior or conduct looks like for Christians in relation to the society in which they live. Okay? Let's look at it closer. So the three exhortations of verse 11 that we just read, aspire to live quietly, mind your own affairs, and work with your hands, are all connected to the purpose statement found in verse 12. Do these things, verse 12, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. All right, walk properly before outsiders. Again, who are the outsiders? They're non-Christians, 
those not part of the Christian faith and community. They're on the outside of the church, okay, because they are not truly part of the church. For that matter, they could be attending with the church, but they're in a sense, truly still outsiders until they have given their life to Jesus Christ. So those are the outsiders. And we are to do these things, these exhortations, which we'll look at in a second, so that we might walk properly toward those outsiders. What does that mean? The NIV translates it this way, and it's, it's not a literal translation. It's more of an interpretation, but it's, it's not out of bounds. It's, it's a right way to translate the meaning of the words there or what the author is trying to get at, the Apostle Paul. But in 1 Thess 4.12, the NIV um, translates it this way, so that your daily life, so that's the walk, that's the walking, your daily life, may win the respect of outsiders. That is the uh, idea of walking properly toward outsiders. Another translation puts it this way, then people who are not believers will respect the way you live. Here's the exhortations. Do this so that you'll gain the respect of outsiders or people who are not believers will respect the way you live. We're going to get into that a little bit. So the idea here is that the Christian live in a way, live in a way, which would be pleasing to God this way, that would gain the respect of the society in which they are a part of and which they minister to or should be ministering to. Okay, so think about all of your unbelieving neighbors, co-workers, family. Those are the outsiders okay, that we're living before. Now, one writer puts, says this about that expression, walk properly before outsiders. He says, the expression suggests, again, just drilling this home, the social impact of the daily walk of believers toward those outside the faith implying that their Christian walk amid or among non-Christians will exert a favorable impact on them, a favorable impact on them. That is, if they're doing these things, the exhortations, okay? Another writer points out that that term properly, to walk properly, it assumes certain social norms, or expectations. The idea is that people who live in such a way, they are counted as respectable members of society. They engage in respectable pursuits. Those people are living properly, properly. He goes on to say this, this did not mean giving up Christian distinctives in order to gain the respect of outsiders. That's not what Paul's talking about. The church should not gloss over the stumbling block of the cross. It does offend people. Or surrender Christian sexual ethics in an effort to fit into society. We're not going to change our position on these things that God says about these matters, whether society likes it or not. Okay. In short, where clear Christian principles conflicted with societal norms, the Christian was to obey Christ, not appease society. Now listen, yet the church was not to alienate itself from society. In order to be a witness in the world, the church had to remain in it 
and dialogue with it. Christians had to live lives and have to live lives that gained them a measure of respect, even if it was given grudgingly by the world. The respect they gained from the world impacted the world's opinion of the gospel. Thus, the church had to walk the fine line and has to walk the fine line of neither alienating unnecessarily nor imitating non-Christian society. And indeed it is a fine line. But it's one we need to walk if we, have, if we want to do all that we can to reach our society with the gospel and not put up unnecessary roadblocks to that very gospel. Because we live in a way that, that not even the unbelieving world respects. How a Christian lives their life before outsiders is mentioned in other letters by Paul. So it's not just here. This is, this is not a one-time thing. This is an important thing to Paul who wants to get the gospel out and wants to, again, prevent Christians, keep them from putting unnecessary roadblocks in front of the gospel, which we do sometimes. We do because we're not living to please God. So to the church in Colossae, Paul writes this in Colossians 4, just to show you where he addresses this, the same theme again and speaking about these outsiders and a concern about them and how we walk towards them, how we conduct ourselves in front of them. He says in Colossians 4, verse 5, walk in wisdom toward, there's the word again, outsiders, those outside the faith, not outside a building, those outside the faith, outside of Christianity, unbelievers, non-Christians, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Now, I dare not go too far here because Thomas will eventually get here. So I, don't, I want him to deal with it primarily. I don't want to create an issue for him. But uh, verse 5, one writer says this, to be wise in the way you act toward outsiders is to show practical Christian wisdom in dealing with secular society. Paul's words imply that believers are to be cautious and tactful so as to avoid needlessly antagonizing or alienating their pagan neighbors. In a positive sense, they also imply that believers should conduct themselves so that the way they live will attract, impress, and convict non-Christians and give the pagan community a favorable impression of the gospel. Of the gospel. I mean, beloved, if, does the gospel set people free from sin and the tyranny of it? Oh, it indeed does. If it's truly believed... And embraced, it sets them free. And it empowers them and moves them to love, to love neighbor, to love God, to love the outsiders, yes? So that's what should be manifested in our lives. A wooing, a life that is attractive, a life that is, yes, even respectable. Do you think God calls you to live uh, a life that's less respectable than the unbelieving world lives? 
And nor does God call us to alienate our, our unbelieving friends, and, or maybe they're not friends, but co-workers or, or, you know, family or neighbors to do things that would, for no good reason, push them away. These are the very people we are to reach. Now, they may choose not to want to be near us or around us simply because of what we believe, because of our commitment to Jesus Christ. They may, but we shouldn't be the ones that are doing foolish things and causing them to look at us and go, why would anybody want to hear anything from them? What could they possibly say or know? Look at the mess that their life is. So we have to think about these things. Paul also addresses the matter when he talks about qualifications for elders. So the leaders of the church. He says in 1 Timothy 3.7, Moreover, he, that is the candidate for elder, a male, he, must be well thought of by who? Well, who cares? Are you sure, Paul? Why need I concern myself when I'm thinking about an elder of the church, a leader of that church, why do I need to concern myself with what unbelievers think of him? And yet Paul says that is a, indeed a qualification. If he doesn't measure up here, he should not be a leader of the church. And he goes on to say, so that he may not fall into disgrace or into a snare of the devil. One writer says, a leader in the church must have an unimpeachable reputation in the unbelieving community. How can he make a spiritual impact on those who do not respect him? So if I got a guy who, you know, is in the church and seeking to become an elder, but outside of the church... The unbelieving world knows him to be a jerk. You can say that word, right? Yeah. A cheat. Not a faithful man to his wife. Or maybe just uh, looks a little bit too long at ladies walking by. Lack of respect. Then how is that man ever going to have an input? He has no business standing up and being a representative for the church and certainly not leading that precious flock. When uh, I became uh, an elder at Foothill Bible Church many years ago, I actually had to give them references of people that they could call who weren't believers. You know, what, what does the unbelieving world think of you? Now, again, they may disagree with what you believe, but still, if you're living the way that God would have you to live, a God-pleasing life, even if they have to do it grudgingly, they'll have to give some respect because you live well. You're a kind person. You don't cheat people. You care for people. You're faithful. And those things are still, on some level, respectable even in a pagan society. 
One writer says, when a leader in the church has a bad reputation in the community, it often brings irreparable damage to the local congregation and indeed to the entire cause of Christ. It matters. It matters how we live, not just among one another and before one another, exercising, excelling in brotherly love. It matters how we live out there with them, <laughs> the outsiders. Or they're nothing to be afraid of. They're the people we are to reach. But how we live matters. It's not just what we say. We must say something. But we must live a certain way as well. Otherwise, it's all undone before their eyes. It is not pleasing to God to tell someone the gospel and then live an unholy life. One that even the unbelieving world says, are you serious? It is not okay. It is not pleasing to God. does not please him. As I said, do you care? I hope, I trust you do. I hope you do. I pray you do. And if you don't, I pray you will. I pray you will. It matters so much for our effectiveness in, in sharing the, the gospel, for our witness as a local church. It matters your Facebook posts matter. Think about that. Next time you go to post, think about it, please. What does this communicate? Is this respectable? Even to an unbelieving world, would this be respectable? Am I, what am I trying to communicate to others? A, a life lived for God or something else? It matters. With that background, and five minutes on the clock, let's go back to the exhortations found in verse 11. Do you know one of the things I long for when we get to heaven is the removal of time? <laughs> in some ways, I feel like it's a curse, so... Verse that's 4.11. So in verse 10, he says, we urge you. That's flowing out of verse 10. What do we urge you to do? We urge you to excel even more in your love for one another and these things, to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you. And I'll go through these fairly quickly because they're not meant to be, they're, they're short statements. They're not meant to, you know, go deep, deep into. This is not, it's pretty simple. Uh, there might be some, you know, debate about exactly how to get at this or what Paul's trying to communicate or the nuances here, but I'll give you um, what my studies have brought out. So aspire to live quietly. This is, again, so that you'll gain the respect of outsiders. So in your, in your living, in your daily living, your weekly living, you, Christian, if you want to please God or to aspire to live quietly. <gasps> is that what it means? You know, don't be loud. Well, not exactly, but it's, it is kind of close, and I'll show you what I mean. Uh, another translation says, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. I like that translation. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, not a noisy life. A good illustration of this would just be uh, your life should look like a calm sea, not a stormy ocean. I, I could compare your life to a calm sea. I take the phrase here to mean that we are to 
basically lead a tranquil life or a life free or absent of external disturbances. External disturbances. So based on the context, I believe the idea here is that the Christians should make it their ambition if they're looking to please God, they should aspire to not disrupt or agitate the society in which they live. They should make it their ambition to attempt to avoid conflict or trouble with those outsiders living around them. They are to make it their aim to lead a quiet life, a life free of external disturbances. Uh, Say it another way. A Christian should not be a menace to society or their neighbors or their neighborhood or their workplace. But rather, they should strive to be a good and trouble-free member of it, a most excellent neighbor a most excellent co-worker. Does that make sense? One writer says it should be clear from Paul's own history, though. Listen, here's the caveat. That living quietly did not mean the church should tone down its proclamation of the gospel. We don't shut our mouths concerning the gospel. But even in the way you bring the gospel, there's a way to do it with love. Speech seasoned, you know, beautiful speech with patience and with kindness. Instead of trying to, you know, beat people down or or make them feel small or what? On the contrary, Paul consistently encouraged boldness in this regard in the preaching of the gospel and the making it known. The church was not to live so quietly that they failed to function as witnesses of Christ, both in word and deed. But... It was not Paul's intent that the church disrupt society. Rather, he encouraged Christians to be good citizens and exemplary members of their society, but to do so in a manner consistent with the teachings of Christ. Only in this sense was the Pauline gospel intended to change society. Don't miss this. It's set out to change the individual's who made up society. Instead of trying to overturn it ourselves through force, while awaiting that climactic event when the power of God would truly change the world forever. Because he's the one that's ultimately going to disrupt society. And he will overturn it. And he will make it all that it should be. Meanwhile, the church is here living in the world, not being of it, at least they're not to be of it, living out lives that are pleasing to God and ministering the gospel to others, making Christ known by word and by deed, living good and respectable lives, leaving nothing there that would stand in a roadblock between this very gospel that they preach, living lives that are wooing and effective and drawing people unto themselves that they might want to hear that very gospel that you preach. Because that's the mission We have not been given a mission to up in society or undo it, but rather to lead people in that society to Jesus Christ. And guess what? As you do that, society effectively begins to transform, to be more Christ-like, certainly, but only to the degree that people are changed internally by God. 
aspire to live quietly. Be absent of external disturbances. Don't be an agitator unnecessarily. Beloved, you know, I was thinking I could... um, As I was working through this, I thought, there are so many examples maybe I could give you. But what I'm hoping is that the Spirit of God in you will take this instruction and the words here, God's words, and, and show you specifically how maybe you are an agitator when you should not be. It's not pleasing to God of our society. That you are a disruptor when you shouldn't be. That you are engaging in conflict with the outside world when you have no business doing that. You're really not a good citizen, if that's the case, that he would show you that. But something as simple, and you know I've, this is a personal struggle of mine, is traffic. Uh, honestly, this is a, I, I struggle bad. This is an area where God needs to keep working on me in my sanctification. It is the reason I want to leave California. It is. I hate it. I know, brother, but God has called me here. I cannot leave to Oregon like you're doing. This is where I am, you know? You're getting out. Good for you. Good for you, brother. But I, I must stay here. This is, this is where the body of Christ is. He's called me to this, this local church. So don't worry, I'm not leaving. I want to, but I'm not. So the traffic, it is just gotten, you know, I've lived here all my life. But think about it. This is a way, people around me are agitated, but I can't, if I'm agitated, if I allow that to agitate me so much that I begin to do things that any common person would go, that's disrespectful, that's wrong, cutting people off, telling them they're number one, all of those things. (laughs) Yelling at them. Uh, And I'm telling you, I'm I'm not guiltless here. I don't do the number one thing. I don't. That I draw the line at that. But I have, because uh, uh, that's not right, brothers. It's not right. It's not. But either is cutting them off or, you know, you do things. You act aggressive. That's, a, that's looking to create conflict. That's not living a quiet life. May I say that? That's not living. That's a stormy sea. That's an agitator. So, yeah, I know it makes you feel good for a second. I mean, because why else would we do it? It feels a little good. You get a little bit of that out, right? You know, you let them have it. But I have to keep repositioning myself to say, Jeremy, what are you to be about? As a follower of Jesus Christ, what are you to be about? You are to please God in all ways, including something as simple as you're driving on these freeways. See, my face turned right there. You saw it. It's in me still. I know I got to work on it. But you know what I'm saying, and it's a simple one, but it happens in so many other ways. We don't live tranquil lives, and yet that's what God has called us to do so that we may gain the respect of outsiders, so that we might have even greater opportunity to minister the gospel to them, so that they may not have anything to say against us that would clearly stand so that people would have no reason then to come to me or listen to the gospel that I say proclaim, that very gospel that said, set me free from sin and has made me a lover of people. Really? Because your actions say otherwise. Okay, attend to your own business. He adds to aspire to live quietly, 
Mind your own affairs, actually, is what it is in the ESV. I, I gave you the NASB, attend to your own business. I think they're both good translations. And generally, people, commentators and stuff, will talk about the idea of, you know, it means stay out of other people's affairs. And certainly, it includes that. But more than just, in other words, don't be a busybody, get into other people's business when you don't belong there. But that's not exactly what he says. He says, rather, thinking of the, attend to your own business. So, the implication is that it's important that you keep your own affairs in order. I mean, yes, if you're busy getting into everyone else's affairs and business, then certainly, uh, true, you'll not keep your own affairs in order. But the primary focus, I think, here of Paul is keep your own affairs in order, Christian. Concentrate on your own life and get and keep it in order. They must avoid, one writer says, the neglect of their personal affairs. They are to serve God by a faithful performance of their own individual tasks. Can I say it another way? Be responsible people. (laughs) Come on. Take care of your stuff. Attend to your own matters. That doesn't, listen, that doesn't mean that you don't seek help or you're, you know, but you're, the idea, if you're seeking help, it's maybe you need help to take care of your matters, but you're still, the primary focus is, I need to take care of my business. I need to take care of my family, my home, my matters. Don't, because of neglect, unnecessarily then be a burden to others because you just failed to take care of your business. You know, that kind of... When someone gets into that rut, then they're always needing, but never in a position to help because they never take care of their stuff. Does that, do you understand? Without me trying to dive in and try to and really irritate some of you by giving personal examples, uh, do you understand what I'm saying? And I mean, do you, re- okay, do you have respect or do you think anybody will have respect for someone who doesn't, who clearly their life indicates they don't take care, they are irresponsible They're looking for everyone else to take care of them or their matters. They don't pay attention. They're off doing this, but they don't take care of the things they really should be taking care of. Does that person gain any respect? You think that pleases God? So, yeah, just one. Take care of your marriage. Take care of it. So many Christians, you know, they neglect it. And I think it's really difficult to, on one hand, be preaching the gospel, and on the other hand, completely hate your spouse or live in a way with them that doesn't glorify the Lord, and people can see that, wow, is that what I want? That's certainly not what I want. Because you haven't taken care of business. And because you haven't taken care of business, you guys know as well as I know that when a marriage starts to fall apart, everything starts to fall apart. So because we didn't put the time in to take care of this, everything else goes oh, to a bad place, you know, to heck. You know what I'm saying? I'm just trying to be a little real with you. Yeah. And, the, and folks are in a, in a bad state. They, they are not in a place to help one another or care for one another. 
Because their lives are a wreck. Why? Because they neglected taking care of their own stuff. Huh? So don't get me wrong. If you've done that and you're in trouble and you need help, we want to help you. Okay? We want to help you. But we want you to get serious about taking care of your stuff, which may require help. Don't just keep avoiding it and doing other stuff. It's going to come back to bite you, and you will lose respect, even among outsiders. Wait a minute. Isn't that gospel say something about, you know, loving your wife and wives respecting your husbands? And aren't you guys supposed to have something special, you know? Uh Third, Paul says, work with your own hands. Okay? Live a tranquil life. Be responsible. Take care of your stuff. Stop playing video games. Hey, there's nothing wrong with video games, but... Just what I found with all that stuff is sometimes it then consumes us and then we don't take care of our stuff, okay? Video games are not evil. Well, some of them are. But you know what I'm saying. You know what I'm saying? If you let it own you and you, don't, you neglect other things for the sake of the video game, evil. Not pleasing to God. But that could go for television too, folks, or anything else, or just sitting there gelling out and not taking care of your stuff. You're going to lose respect of even outsiders. It's going to be a problem for you as you try to evangelize them and bring this life-changing gospel to them. Well, how did it change you? Not much, it looks like. You're worse off. My marriage is better than yours. Anyway, work with your own hands. So is Paul saying Christians must practice manual labor? Yes? I think Greg said that. That's hilarious. That's right, beloved. If you want to please God, you have to work with your hands. And if you don't, well, sorry. Sorry. Manual labor is a glory unto the Lord. Uh, So there is a matter of manual labor even to the Greeks. They kind of despised it. They thought others should do their work. But that's really not the emphasis here. He's not trying to make that point. I think uh, one writer says, this is not a command to the wealthy, for instance, to take up a trade. You know, but an encouragement, you know, those who may not work with their hands but own a business, but they may not physically work with their hands. So it's not a command regarding that, but rather an encouragement to each individual to do his own work and so be a self-supporting, contributing member of the church and so also of his city. And we know that Paul himself attempted to set a good example in this regard. We see it even in this letter and also in the next letter that he writes to the Thessalonians, right? I worked with my own hands. I provided for myself so that it wouldn't be a burden to you. Earn your own living. Earn your own living, sluggards. And I'm not talking to you. I'm just saying, you know, people are lazy and look to be dependent on others when they need not be. There's a difference between someone who needs to depend on others, okay? So again, please understand that. You might have to be dependent on others because you are unable, flat out unable to work. 
Yeah? Is that not true? Physical, health, or you're looking hard to get work. You really are, and you're not yet being able to work, and you might need help. Those people should get help. But for the rest of them, who could work, but choose not to, and rather sponge off society, or even the church. There's no respect for that. Even outsiders don't respect that. Yeah? He says, earn your own living so you may walk properly before outsiders in verse 12, and then be dependent on no one. That's the second part of that purpose statement. Be dependent on no one. Now, what is he talking about? What's the context? He's not saying that, listen, I am, to one degree or another, I'm, I'm dependent on my wife. I'm definitely dependent on the Lord. Every moment of every day, and when I forget that, I get in trouble. But I'm dependent on her. I'm dependent on you, church, on my brothers and sisters in Christ. Yeah? Huh? Dependent on my friend here. So he's not talking about that kind of relational dependence. What's he talking about? Materially. Materially, financially, if you will, so that you might be dependent on no one. So you, you, you're providing your own living, not in any need. So, now, now think about that in light of now this. Another letter written by Paul in Ephesians 4.20, he says, he says this to the church. Okay, you ready? Let the thief no longer steal. He's talking to the church. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor. Let him work. Doing honest work with his own hands. So again, it's not just the idea, you know, I use my hands, but he's doing his own work. He's putting in his own effort. He's earning his own living, and look what he says here. So that he may have something to share with anyone in need. You think, oh, don't steal because thieves are bad. Yeah. But look how the gospel transforms this. Yeah, don't steal and work hard, not just so you can provide for yourself, but then you would be in a position to provide for those who really are in need. That's pleasing to God. And that merits the respect, earns the respect of even an outsider. Huh? Yep. And then... uh. To close it out, because we have to, one writer says that even outsiders, so-called because they have no connection with Christ and hence are outside the family of God, they recognize winsome conduct. On the other hand, they are repelled by those who do not carry their share of social responsibility. Beloved, it matters how you live your life. It matters to God. Do you want to please him? Do you care about pleasing him? You know? then these things matter. And finally, my good old friend John MacArthur, not a personal friend, but from a distance. <laughs> I met him once up front, talked to him actually face to face. He says this, such practical, straightforward living, he's commenting on this passage, as embodied in the Apostle Paul's exhortations to the Thessalonians, is the foundation of all evangelism. Believers who exhibit tranquil lives, conscientiously focus on keeping their own lives in order, and faithfully carry out their daily responsibilities in the workplace 
all the while proclaiming the gospel, are the most effective witnesses to their unsaved neighbors and loved ones. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. I thank you for your church. And Father, do your work now in us that only you do through your word and through your spirit. Help us come under this. Help us conform ourselves to these things. And Father, work on us so that we would make it our ambition to always please you in every area of our life and not wonder how to do that, but look to your word where it is revealed how we are to do that and then submit ourselves to it. Not once, not twice, but over and over and over again. That our lives truly would be ones that would honor you and glorify you because you, Father, are worthy. You are worthy. In Jesus' name, amen.